a lot of times I see this idea of consciousness being misinterpreted to mean another version of thinking. And oftentimes, again, when we're locked in our thinking mind, like you're saying, between my head, so many of us spend so much time in our thoughts. We don't have that separation. We think that we are the thoughts that are happening in our thinking mind. That was Dr. Nicole LaPera. Now, when I look back at a year of podcasting or more, multiple years, I can't help but say, you know, wow, this particular episode or that. My last conversation with Nicole LaPera was such a mind blower. So it wasn't that it was unexpected. It was just there was so much value for me personally, just the awareness that it brought to me that I had to have her back when she announced her newest work, which is a book called How to Meet Yourself. And what is especially interesting in today's conversation around her new work is that we do dig deeper into all kinds of things like our childhood pasts, but it's in a way that is very accessible. And if you don't think that you need to do work around becoming more present as showing up as the human that you want to be, then congratulations. It sounds like you've got it all figured out. But today's episode, we do that. And what Nicole's work is so powerful around is doing this in a kind, gentle, thoughtful, uh, and dare I say, safe way, approachable way, way that a way that doesn't, um, I don't know, reject any part of ourselves, even the part of ourselves that is sort of scared to admit that it would be helpful if we looked at some of the ways that we operate in the world and how we might be able to do them better in order to be a better version of ourselves. So again, if you're not familiar with Dr. Nicole's work, uh, I highly in- uh, recommend the Instagram follow. Her handle is the dot holistic h o l i s t i c. I think I spelled that right. <laughs> Hot psychologist. Um, and I mean, I have some friends that, that their Instagrams grow quickly. I mean, every time I look, she has another million followers, uh, and that's because the work it not only does it speak for itself, but it is very uh, relatable, accessible, and incredibly valuable. Today's episode of the show matches all that stuff. It is so good. I can't wait for you to enjoy learning a little bit about how we can show up better in the world. Yours truly and Dr. Nicole LaPera, how to meet yourself. Dr. Nicole, you're back. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm back, Chase. Thank you so much for having me. You're back. And I don't know, the last time I you were on the show, I, I basically have blinked and you are everywhere. And for good reason, I think you're doing incredibly important work. I seriously, I can't scroll for 10 seconds in my feed without seeing you or a reference to your work or your new work. We're going to talk about a new book, a new workbook, uh, Self-Directed, which I think is game-changing. But uh, first of all, Congratulations. Your work is reaching a huge audience and more so than just the reach, the impact is massive. Um, What uh, did you, uh, could you see, you know, most people when they, uh, I say, when you see where you want to go, you don't have to see the whole staircase. You just have to see, you know, a a couple of steps. I feel like, uh, are you, where are you in your journey? Are you just beginning? This is totally remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of seeing or the vision, I am quite often blown away, um, whatever I sign on, whatever platform that it is. Uh, as I think the first account began on 
uh, Instagram, the holistic psychologist. And when I went on three plus years ago at this point, um, well, yeah, I mean, of course I had the vision to help as many people with my journey as I could in sharing it. My, my intention was really personal. It was selfish in a lot of ways to give me a place, a platform, a, a space to begin to share my story. And very quickly, I did see how universally resonant that it was. And I think what you're referencing now is that we spent the better part of the past year really expanding across all of the platforms. Because as far as I see it, love or hate social media, it's where most of us are spending our time and most of the global collective that makes up very much a large majority of the community. And seeing um, and understanding, I think, the circumstances that many people, especially outside of the United States, where you know, I have the privilege of living, not having access to this information, to these conversations, and to the tools really, for me, implanted the passion of making sure that as far as I could contribute, that I was doing that. I was showing up, expanding the reach on all of the different platforms, of course, getting creative and incorporating video and all of these different ways to translate this message. But for me, social media really is the way to access the population. And to then very specifically answer your point, no, I would never have imagined the growth to continue as it was. But for me, it's just affirming, again, how universally resonating and important these messages are to keep getting them out there. Well, without going into details, like every time I blink, there's a new million people paying attention to your work. And I'm not, I'm really not exaggerating. I mean, I, I consume your content every day and I don't look at your bio page and all these other things, but every time I, when I stumble across them and say example, in preparation for our conversation today, I'm just like, yes, when someone has the, the, the message that you have and you're reaching the audience that you are, it makes me uh, it gives me faith in the future of humanity because what you're doing, and this is where I want to, this is my segue from our introduction into your work for the people who are either new to your work or um, who yeah, might not be as familiar with it as I am as someone who consumes it every day. Can you orient us, uh, the listeners and watchers of our show today around who you are, your work and where you fit into the, the universe of what it is to be a human? Yeah, I think what I speak to and why I why that that initial or why the Instagram account was so initially resonating with people, I think I speak to a really common universal experience which is of being stuck. Um, when I came online, it was really informed by my professional journey as a clinical psychologist. Um, having had a successful practice in Philadelphia where I'd lived for many years, what I saw week after week after only a short amount of time in that practice was that phenomenon of no matter how much insight, awareness, um, even support that a lot of the clients that I was working with have had, reports of continuing those old dysfunctional habits, of having symptoms, of still being stuck, really simply not getting better. So for me, I sought to first understand, seeing the same patterns in myself, having come through the system, been on the other side of the couch, had all of, or at least I found myself having access to these ideas and tools, yet again, I found myself stuck. So becoming curious first and foremost with why are we as humans struggling so much, even over generations, as far as I see it, you know, mental illness diagnoses are going up, suffering is going up, and yet we can't seem to affect change. We can't seem to, you know, give people the tools to actually relieve that suffering. So I really sought to understand, and what I was really met with is how habitual, how subconsciously driven, and how so many of us are living from an autopilot that is so imprinted 
by the earliest relationships environments that so many of us grew up. So my work really does locate us as conscious beings, even though so many of us are, again, repeating subconscious habits that are keeping us stuck. And then, of course, creating the pathway or the roadmap, regardless of wherever you are on your journey, to begin to make new choices and actually become unstuck from those deep patterns that, again, are, in my opinion, contributing to the suffering that many of us are living in. Your first uh, instant New York Times bestseller, straight to number one, called How to Do the Work. When you were on the show last time, that was the focus of our conversation, not just because you had a book out, but because even the concept of beginning to do work on our person is a big one. And it's um, it's overwhelming because where do you start, right? Do you, mm-hmm. you start with your, your childhood? Do you start with the argument that you got in with your your partner, you know, two minutes ago, where ought we start when realizing, I'm guessing, I'm I'm envisioning a world, someone is coming to the show right now and saying, okay, cool. I'm listening to this. I'm a little bit aware of Dr. Nicole's work and it's time. I got to start, I got to start addressing some, some of this stuff. Where to start? I really appreciate us even starting by answering that question because Chase, that's the question that I got most frequent um, from people who have met my work, whatever social media platform that that it may be on, or even reading how to do the work. While I did very much intend to and dropped in the practical application at the end of every chapter, there's the journal prompts, the tools, how do I translate whatever concept that that chapter um, overviewed into daily action, though all of the while, while, while I was writing it, I knew that there was so much more to the journey and very frequently having gotten asked then, okay, well, how exactly do I, you know, observe myself? How exactly do I know why I'm stuck to begin to then make new choices to become unstuck? So for me, it was the initial seed that planted and grew into this workbook, really seeking to give the entire roadmap. And I'm sure those of you who have listened to me speak before probably won't be surprised that the initial foundation, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of any change process, anytime we want to transform or make new actions, is to really learn how to live in a state of conscious awareness. So I separated the workbook very much into a three-stage, if you will, process where first we become conscious and then I take us on a journey of becoming conscious to all of the different habits that are coloring our life. So once we learn how to observe ourselves, then we can start to see in terms of our body, what are the different choices that we're making that might be impacting how our body is experiencing the moments? And then of course we want to peel back the layer of the body, drop into the mind and how habitual our mental world is and our narrations of our events and of course how they then impact our lived experiences, our felt emotions. And then finally pulling back that final layer of the onion to discover who we really are. And again, I'm very intentional because until we become conscious, until we begin to see the habits that are keeping us stuck stuck and create a bit of separation, we're not going to be able to make those new choices. So learning to be that observer, and then like I said, taking us through the journey of all of these different layers of impact, some of us not even aware of how habitual we are in some of those areas and how much those habits are again coloring our experience. So the journey will always begin in learning how to be that conscious being and see these areas for ourselves. What is the the um, phrase that in the moment between sort of the experience and responding, we have to cultivate an awareness and so we can actually choose 
how how we show up in that moment. This is very foundational, the concept of awareness. I'm writing right now, I'm working on another book, and awareness is one of the things that is is very present in all of the writing, and I'm trying to figure out how to sort of package it and put it in there. What Can, can you talk about how we become aware like let's let's get get to the how because right now that makes sense right okay great before we can change we have to become aware that 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 there's something that's you know different from this thing between our ears for us to to go out and to to make a piece of work around okay i want to i want to change something in myself and of course see that earlier phrase that i said we got there's a moment in there how, how do we start that what what is becoming aware? What does it look like and feel like? And how is it different than my day to day? What's going on right now in my brain? I'm going to get my coffee. I'm, what is it? How, how is it? Yes. I let's, I think, start with maybe how it isn't, um, okay. how it feels when we're locked and loaded in that autopilot. Because I think that's probably the, the start point for at least it was for me and for so many of us on our journey. And, you know, when we're not conscious, we don't have that space between stimulus and response to choose. So very understandably, many of us might feel and describe feeling very reactive, right? Very out of control, even a victim to our circumstances, because without that space, we are locked and loaded. We, many of us catch ourselves mid reaction or somewhere after the fact. And then, you know, oftentimes we, we feel very, very shameful. So we can say we feel, you know, out of control around our emotions. We feel numb. We feel stuck. We feel disconnected from our life. We feel unable. Impulsive might be another word that, that comes to mind. And all of that really just describes nothing that's inherently wrong with us per se, as I very much thought for a long time, it really just describes how locked and loaded and how stuck we are in that emotional brain. To become conscious, and something I want to offer here, because a lot of times I see this idea of consciousness being misinterpreted to mean another version of thinking. And oftentimes, again, when we're locked in our thinking mind, like you're saying, between my head, so many of us spend so much time in our thoughts, we don't have that separation. We think that we are the thoughts that are happening in our thinking mind. From a state of observation, I like to describe it like the overhead lights on in a room. I can see I'm having a thought. I might even see myself obsessively thinking a thought. However, I'm in observation of that thought. I'm not caught down the rabbit hole and I am only in that state of thinking. So I just like to make that distinction there because sometimes when we engage in over self-analysis, right, where we're always thinking and overanalyzing and analyzing our thoughts and analyzing our daily experiences, in my opinion, that's still a version of being in our thinking mind. So how do we become conscious? We learn how to observe when our mind is having a thought. We learn how to observe how our body is experiencing our current moment, what sensations are happening. If I you know, from, start from the top of my head down to the tips of my toes, I can do a body scan and tune into how do my muscles feel? How is it to be physically present in my body right now? And then, of course, I can drop inward and also turn that state of awareness to, okay, I'm thinking. I'm having a lot of thoughts, maybe overwhelming thoughts, but I'm observing the fact that I'm thinking. I'm not lost in thought, if that makes sense. So consciousness, to simply define it, is that state of awareness where I can see 
and kind of shift down my focus and see all the sensations and experience them in my body. I can even see all of the thoughts going through my mind, but like the overhead lights in the room, I'm aware of them. I'm not lost in thought or lost in my body sensations, if that makes sense. Mm. Not only does it make sense, it's a beautiful description of it. There are two things that I want to hinge on in your response there. One, I was reminded when you said, you know, there's something wrong with me. I was reminded of a book that my wife introduced me to from a monk named Sherry Huber who talked, wrote a book called There's Nothing Wrong With Me. And I think that, you know, when I have looked at my own, you know, childhood wounds and thinking about, you know, how do I want to be in the world and... Um, when I have had conversations with friends that are open and transparent about, you know, trying to um, grow mental health, that there, this idea that there is a gap, be, that, that there is something wrong. I'm wondering, you said it very, you know, it was just a, a phrase in there. You're like, when I used to think that there was something wrong. So help us orient around that, because I think that in, there's, a, there's a kernel there that's very powerful and I'm hoping you can help us understand it. Yeah, I think so, so often, quite universally, we, we believe that, you know, there is something inherently deficient, lacking, or un, unworthy about us. And, you know, I can locate a, a point in childhood where oftentimes that, that narrative becomes the case for most, most of us. And what I'm referencing, of course, is in, in, in childhood, all of us humans are in a complete state of dependency, meaning we can't keep our physical existence, we can't keep ourselves alive without the help of a caregiver. Now, of course, we all have access to different, you know, presence in terms of our caregiver, whether or not we've even had a human physically available to us. And then, of course, we all have different degrees of emotional awareness or presence with our caregiver. And for the many of us who didn't have someone consistently available to attune to us, what we might need in a given moment, and then to more consistently than not help us to meet our needs. When we're developmentally immature, not only are we dependent, we don't have the emotional maturity in our mind, which is always seeking to make sense of our world around us, to understand it, to create a sense of control. We don't have the the bandwidth or the maturity to kind of zoom out like we do in adulthood and kind of hover above and say, oh, okay, Humans are complex. There's so many different factors and reasons which might be causing my parent, whomever that might be, to not be physically or emotionally present to me, many of which I might not even be you know, aware of, maybe factors that have, were, were the case for them in their early childhood or you know, adult years, whatever it might be. Without that awareness, the actual why, we can only land on a very ego-based or a personalized reason. And part of it is so that we can assume a sense of control. So if we're the cause of some of our caregiver's absence, lack of presence, whatever it might be, then of course, if we show up differently, if we don't cry as much, if we're not as you know stressful or whatever it might be, we can maintain this seeming sense of control. So in childhood, in absence, again, of an attuned, consistent caregiver, and very few of us had that, most roads will lead back to that awareness or that meaning of those events. There's something wrong with me. I'm unworthy. There's something unlovable that's making this caregiver not want to or not be able to show up for me. And then the more we repeat those same similar meanings or, you know, imaginings about current events, the more than we, we solidify those 
into our beliefs. And that's why I think so many of us into adulthood really resonate with that idea that there is something inherently wrong with us because of whatever factor, whatever lack of presence, whatever lack of attunement we experienced in childhood, that was the only way at one time we could make sense of it. And then we continue to repeat that well into our adult life. Mm. Thank you for that. That I, I feel like most, again, most people, myself included early on and in the journey and there's, there's just this, there's a, a gap between who we think we are and who we want to be. And that gap is if anytime there's a gap, there's this like, well, I want to be over there. And that, that even that framework, even the words that I'm using create this distance, right? Between, um, just deficiency. I'm here and I want to be there. There's a deficiency there that, so how ought we, what are new words that we can use to make this gap zero? What are, how can we refer to ourselves in such a way? How can we talk to ourselves? If again, we're talking about the conversations going on in our head, you know, that they are directly proportional to our, our state of being, what are some very, very found foundational fundamental ways that we can reframe what we're dealing with so we can even get started? Yeah. And I think it's, it's so we, we back ourselves into a corner, even the way you're describing it, right? I'm here. I want to be there. I, I want yeah. what this person has, or, you know, if only I continue to, you know, show up a lot of times the way we compensate for not feeling good enough is we shift into performance, right? We become a caretaker. We, we worry about other people. We become a people pleaser. We embody a role as our best attempt to feel worthy, to feel good enough. And for some of us, especially entrepreneurs, high achievers, this is what I was referencing. I shifted into that kind of achievement-based performance, not only in my professional life, but in my personal relationships. Again, with this mm. idea that if I just do enough, right, or if I just show myself enough, I will feel, I will fill that deep, deep hole. And this is what I was referencing when I said we back ourselves into a corner because the reality of it is being over there where we imagined we want to be, continuing to perform, right? We're still left with that hole because the reality of it is we don't feel good enough just being who we are. In absence of performing or doing, especially us high achievers, overachievers, we really do feel that that depth of that emptiness below us. So, so many of us and drive ourselves exhaustedly into the ground in hopes of feeling worthy, feeling good enough. So our, our goal really in the work as often, I, I break it down into two steps of change. And the first is to become aware, become aware like I did of this pattern for me of overachieving, of performance, of this belief that I'm not good enough unless I'm doing. When we become aware, especially if it's active in real time, when you do want to hit pause, not show up and perform whatever way the world might be requiring of you. And maybe in that space, I want to make a choice for myself. So when I'm conscious in the moment, I can feel that pull, right? I can feel the instinct that, you know what, I want to swoop in and save this person, or, you know, I want to become the caretaker that I once was because this is the only way I can feel love and connected to in this moment. I can become aware of the thoughts driving me into that action, the feelings that are driving me into that action. And in that space, just going back to this 
kind of model of creating that space, now I can make a new choice. I can see that, you know, habitually my habit is to do, to try and feel worthy. And I can, in that moment, either give myself an affirmation that I'm worthy enough as I am, or give myself a gesture of worthiness in absence of someone else. Meaning I can show up for myself. I can honor my being and my needs, which might mean saying no to performing for someone else in that space or in that moment and allowing myself just to be and to be enough as I am. And of course, this isn't a magic switch. It's consistently becoming aware in real time and consistently making that choice to honor ourselves and our needs. And then over time of that consistent action, that old belief that we're not worthy will begin to change because now we'll be living in alignment of being someone who is worthy of having wants and needs and of honoring them in real time, regardless of how it impacts the world around us. Mm very prescient um in preparation for our conversation today i went back and listened to our uh earlier show that you were on and i remembered that that cued some sort of emotional response in me with this the idea of most people or a lot of people who are interested in doing this work don't know really where to start and they start with telling a friend and someone maybe will recommend a therapist and remember from our conversation hearing, okay, cool that you can do a lot with therapy and it's not, it's not something that's frowned on, but you made an interesting distinction about, um, you know, the, the, what you sought to do with your platform or again, originally the dot holistic dot psychologist on Instagram was a little more self-directed. So this is where I'm hoping to move with uh, the ultimate destination being talking about your new book, How to Meet Yourself, the workbook, the self-directed workbook. But for someone out there who may be seeing a therapist and either not getting the results or maybe to expose them to a little bit more about your beliefs around the process, can you orient us and, and say the, you know, talk about the role that the individual can play in taking care of themselves and growing some of these these tools or toolkits and these skills that we need to to navigate being a human. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, for those of us, those of you listening who do have access to whatever supportive helping professional it is, a therapist, the coach, you know, the group, whatever it is that you know we feel we get support from. What is most important and the, the most important relationship, I'll go as far to say, is first and foremost, the relationship with yourself. How are you showing up in these contexts of support? Are you truly bringing your authentic self? Do you even know who that is? And just to pause on that for a second, because the reality of it is so many of us well into our adult years, especially if we've been living habitually, reactively, right, driven by all these habits and patterns of our childhood, our answer to that question, maybe even shamefully so, is no. Even in midst of you know a helping professional's office, having the therapist, if I don't know, and I was dumbfounded um, actually when I was very much heavy into therapy myself, um, heavy into using my friends for therapy myself, and I was in or around my mid to late 20s. And the moment I'm speaking of was when I was going to a friend for support around me feeling pulled in a million different directions of obligations, very true to my conditioned self form, feeling all of these people in my life wanted something different 
of me around a particular event. I even forget what it was. And going to say a supportive friend or professional or therapist, um, as I did with my friend in that moment, and I was looking for support. You know, what should I do to navigate this moment in time? What choice should I make? And after listening to me, you know, detail everyone else and what they, I imagine they wanted from me in this moment, and maybe what I knew that they wanted from me in that future moment, my friend very calmly, and maybe it's a therapist, right, looks at me and says, what do you want? And I was so dumbfounded, Chase, I didn't know. I didn't know how I wanted to spend my time, let alone what my true interests, wants, purpose, passion, pleasures, all of that deeper stuff. And the reality of it is, and I came to see that in myself, so many of us don't know. So when we're in these helping, you know, um, relationships, whatever kind they are, we have to understand ourselves. We need space to truly know what it is that we want. We need a safe relationship. And again, while some of us might have access to that in the support of a therapist, not all of us very much seeing the globalness of my community, we don't, not many of us have outside of the United States access to those level of services. Even more so, I had a big question around how is the rest of the time, your day, your life spent? Because being that therapist, what I saw from my clients was we could come up with a great plan of action to break these habits, new plans to implement new choices or habits that are really going to serve that client. And yet, habit self, all of that autopilot conditioning took over the second right, that that client walked out of my office. Because once we return to our life, we're now embedded with a lot of other habitual patterns and behaviors and new choices that we have to make And when everyone around us oftentimes isn't. And it becomes really difficult to maintain change. So what I really saw the need for, even those of us who do have helping safe places where we can truly be and explore ourselves the support outside, the choices that we're making day to day are really going to be what, what leads us in the direction of change or right back into those old habits. So providing people, whether it's again on my free, the free content I put out across all of the social media platforms are now in the format of this workbook, the goal being a roadmap for wherever you are on your journey so that you do have the tools and you do have then the know-how to implement those tools even outside of those safe, supportive offices that I do hope many of you have access to. Amazing. Uh, I, I was also recalled that you had uh, an online opportunity to participate in this and similar work. Um, can you articulate a little bit about that and how that's, you know, how that relates to, um, I guess, to your original masterwork, um, how to do the work, but also to this self-directed how to meet yourself book. Is there, is this a, the stickiness in between the two and you, are you still, you know, leaning into that part of your business? Cause I think it's a fascinating how you can help so many people at scale from afar. I'm just curious where that yeah. landed. It really grew out of that desire chase too. So working individually, um, I did see that, you know, waitlist time was going up and I really was, and truly now even more so than I once did understand the importance of community, of those safe relationships. If I'm being honest, it's what I wished I had um, when I began my healing journey, because one of the things I think that many of us experience changing as we begin to show up differently is our relationships change. And as I discovered more and more of what I wanted, what I needed, and showed up differently in then all of the interpersonal relationships that I was operating in, I ended up taking distance from them and looking then for new 
more authentic, safer spaces or a community of people who could relate, who spoke the same language or were on the same journey that I was on. So for me, um, and of course I saw while social media, I think is a really great tool. I also understand that it's very public, that not everyone necessarily wants to be sharing, you know, some of the aspects of their very personal healing journey in comments on an Instagram account. I actually saw, and I giggle oftentimes of people who were like, oh, I can't leave this on the, I can't put a comment here because my mom, my partner, someone follows along. So I really did see the need to create a more safe container away from social media. So was born the self-healer circle, which is, um, again, very much self-led, like the workbook is for wherever you are on your healing journey. And it's a space where we gather together in community. We have live workshop events every month. We have like live content tools, how to translate the content that we're talking about each month into the practical application. Of course, we have that safe portal. We spent the better part of now the past three years um, creating our own virtual world, we call it, of the self-healer circle, where there is a community forum and ways to engage and interact with those community members. So for me, again, it was a, a passion and remains very much a passion project, which I can imagine will continue well into the future of the business because so many of us are looking for that safe community, looking again, whether it's for the relationships that some people join solely for that interpersonal connection or to utilize tools in that safe, supportive community. And then of course, everyone in between. Mm. Well, that is a direct pathway to, again, the extension of your masterwork, which is how to meet yourself, the workbook for self-discovery. Uh, thank you again for sending me an advanced copy of this. The thing that struck me, um, I mean, I tore open to the package and immediately in, in diving in, I was, I see the the sections that you've articulated already earlier in our conversation, you know, meeting your your habit self, your emotional self, and then your true self. Uh, but this, it occurred to me, is very much a roadmap that this is doable, regardless of where what station you are in life or what level of, to use your own words, stuck. So I'm going to read something that I have a little excerpt from you that you've written, and then I'm hoping you can comment on it and how someone might think about doing the work in the workbook as you've laid it out. Okay. Absolutely. Hold tight. The journey you are about to take in this book will allow you to see yourself from a new perspective. Your work here will allow you to unlock layers of self-awareness and open you up to a new way of living. This book is a resource to fully witness yourself without judgment and to release the patterns in your life that hold you back or keep you stuck. Talk about how that, is this a roadmap for that? And can we lean on this and or just this, or is this just a great place to start? Orient us, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the gifts that I hope of this workbook, going back to this idea that we're not broken, is you know as we become more and more of a conscious being, you know, seeing the climate of our body, and for many of us, the nervous system dysregulation or over early overwhelming experiences that are literally imprinted in our body and mind. Um, driving our reactions, again, exploring our mental world, all of these feelings that are very real, that are living in our body, that are activated by the similarity, right, of our current experience, of course, to those past early experiences. As we become conscious of every factor that's coloring 
essentially how we feel and what we do, mm -hmm. the gift we're given is that separation that you beautifully described at the beginning of this conversation. And in that separation, we might be able to see all of the intergenerational passing of these habits and patterns. And that's why it is confusing for so many of us, myself included, why I did feel inherently broken and imagine that brokenness was a gift from my family who genetically, right, granted that because I saw that similarity. And of course, we are genetically similar to those that we're genetically related to, though what it also is similar are the environments, are what's being modeled. So as I and many of us look, you know, at our past lineages, at past generations that came before us, we can feel like we've inherited this brokenness. Though until we understand that what we've inherited was these environments and the patterned ways that all of us through the generations have coped with these environments, now in that space, we can feel empowered. We can relieve us of the shame because the reality of it is we were being driven by those habits and patterns that were passed through generations, right? By this idea of brokenness. So when we see we're being driven by habits, not by our conscious choices, not even by our deepest intentions often, many times are in opposition, right? Now we can create space for who we really are and relieve ourselves of all of that brokenness because maybe we do see how all of these habits and patterns and nervous system dysregulation was passed through generations, but now we can maybe just see the, a little sliver of light that new choices are possible. Because for a very long time, seeing that similarity, imagining that it was because of the genetic right, relatability in me and all of my past generations, I didn't think that there was any possibility for me to behave in any other way. And it's not, in my opinion, until we become that conscious being and truly witness for ourselves because we're each going to have different habits and patterns that are keeping us stuck driving our choices that we can then right expand into the possibility that all of that was coming from our habit self. Maybe our best attempt at keeping our body safe in an environment that wasn't safe, but we can learn new choices in both mind and body now. So that's why I, I offer this as a roadmap, really dropping into all of the different degrees of influence and creating the space at each of those moments to make different choices, ones that aren't driven by habit and ones that, again, can convince you by living the experience of being someone who isn't that habit self. How powerful is our conditioned self? God, it's a beast. Yes. It is a beast. It is. It is it so is. powerful and it's self-maintaining too, because yeah. one of the things is, is we, lo we love the habitual because it is predictable. Even if I can imagine people out there listening, what do you mean? What's to love? The predictable patterns have gotten this whole lifetime of negative accumulated consequences, though we can, know, we know what comes next because that's what came next so many other times that this, you know, particular instance, circumstance, choice had happened. So now not only are we locked and loaded with all of these neural pathways of our subconscious mind, often very emotional, right? Governing our choices. The second we go to make a choice outside of those familiar pathways, we begin to feel uncomfortable. We begin to hear a litany of thoughts going through our mind, swirling at rapid pace of all of the reasons why we shouldn't be doing this. We just, we feel uncomfortable. And all of that goes down to that reality that the familiar is predictable. So not only are we habitual, there's a part of our brain that actually is in service of keeping us in those habitual patterns. Oh, <laughs> it's so talk um, about powerful. <laughs> yeah. Talk about powerful. And that's, you know, we, that we would actually rather 
choose the current destructive path because familiar is safer to us than unfamiliarity. Like that is, that is a mind blower. So I, it, in listening to you talk, I, I'm struck by something and I've never done this before, but I maybe even at the, at the risk of saying I'm looking for a cold open for the show because right now there are a host of people that are all, all kinds of different stages in their, I'll just, rather than their growth or development, I'll say in the relationship that they have with themselves. And some people are very comfortable with the idea of childhood trauma or past trauma or, um, you know, not having their needs met as a young person. And some people are, they were like, what do you mean? I had a good, you know, I was the captain of the football team and I dated the cheerleader or whatever the, whatever sort of, you know, orientation. And yet I am struck by the fact that this work is so important that we could all benefit from us. So my ask in this question is how would you orient us around doing this work as important, virtuous, valuable, regardless of what your perception of your childhood was like. I think, you know, and, and especially because I speak as someone who has very few concrete kind of recall based memories, even of, of what my childhood is like, because I do often get asked, like, oh, do we have to go back there? I know what's back there and I don't want to see and or you're like me. I don't I don't have anything that movie right, has been deleted largely. I don't have those memories to revisit. And what I say to any of, of you listening is you don't have to, right? Start now. How connected do you feel to your life, to your relationships, to your decision, to your purpose, to your passion, right? To life as it's happening around you. You know, how fulfilled do you feel? Do you feel there's moments of easeful, what I would call flow, where I'm able to just be without self-monitoring, without kind of shifting out of what I really want to say or do, or am I self-censoring? And, you know, if your, if your answer is, is no, I, I don't ever feel easeful. I feel totally disconnected. I've created maybe like me, this whole world of achievement around me, yet I don't feel fulfilled. I don't feel like I'm the one living this life, then, you know, in my opinion, this, this work is, is for you because that disconnectedness, that lack of fulfillment, um, not even feeling like we're embodying the life that we've created around us. And I think this does apply to a lot of us high achievers, entrepreneurs, right? Where we're going through the motions. Maybe I feel connected to my output of my business, but maybe if I really kind of drop in, I might not see many moments of connection. I might not take many moments to just be with myself. And, as we begin to create space for, for that authentic being, that essence, that inner guidance, we do then allow ourselves, grant ourselves, gift ourselves even with moments of that easeful presence, of that flow state. And I do believe that's where we can translate that into our businesses, pursuing our passion and our purpose, not in a way that feels like we're grunting our way. I think a lot of times when we're high achievers, we are overstepping our, our own self and our own needs and ease can come with achievement. Um, and I actually think as I've learned to embody my wants and my needs and hit pause and not always have to do, we actually can not only become more productive, but, you know, more fulfilled with what we're putting out in terms of our creation. Mm. Is this just, is this, are we talking, is everything that we're talking about under this umbrella, is this mental health? Is this the new sort of, if we crack our, crack our aperture a little wider, is this is this all this under 
the future of mental health in the world that we're living in? Or is it something different, a parallel or analogous? How does it relate? My hope, Chase, is that this is in the in the in the umbrella of wellness in general. Because as far as I see it, our old model of separating mental health, physical health, different doctors for each, is not helpful. Um, the reality of it is, we are an interconnected being. Our body is communicating with our mind. Our mind is communicating with our body. Both of which are imprinted by these early experiences. And we are not truly well, in my opinion, until we are living more connected, more in alignment, and we're meeting the needs of our mind, of our emotion, and of that deeper self. So my hope is that this becomes a conversation in the field of wellness. Um, also, I think shifting us from what I think traditionally has been a focus on illness, sickness, sip, symptom management, without even in my field included, without even this idea that wellness is even possible. I mean, for a very long time, for me having, you know, multiple anxiety diagnoses for as long as I can remember, what I had been taught for so many years in the field was that there was never an opportunity to be without anxiety, that my lot in life, my experience on this earth journey would always be of being an anxious person, of managing my anxiety. So again, I think my hope is when we really explore, understand, and utilize our interconnected nature of our being and begin to identify some of the root causes, nervous system dysregulation being a huge one. If we begin to change the lifestyle choices or how we're caring for our environment, envi our body, change maybe our environment, how we're engaging with the environment around us, that we can then start to have some conversations about actually creating wellness as opposed to just managing sickness symptoms. And again, I think all of this happens when we honor whatever angle you're coming at it from the medical system, from the mental health system, and really understand that we're talking about the same system. Mm. That's the holistic part in your the yes. dot holistic psychologist, which again, I cannot recommend high enough. I read every single one of your posts um, on that on that account, and I have to I pause and highly recommend that as a follow for anyone who is not already following Dr. Nicole there. Um, that was really, I, I love the category, the, the couching of that in wellness. Um, it's, it, it makes so much sense. Again, when you zoom out the interrelationship of all of these things, where I want to take our conversation now is, um, this work is hard. It's full of barriers. I mean, you talk a lot about being stuck. What's the hardest part that you've learned um, that like, I'm, I'm asking for people to be aware of some landmine in their future when they start this work. What, what are the hardest parts that people might not see in their, in their, in, in their field of view? Yeah. I think the, the hardest lived realization is how impactful our body is in particular, um, nervous system dysregulation that so many okay. of us are living in. Um, and this is what I'm speaking to. And I saw so often, you know, in those clients that I would see week after week is, you know, no amount of insight, awareness, listening to podcasts like this, even going through this workbook until you really do the work of regulating your nervous system, of simply creating safety in your body, of allowing your body to go from maybe the stress response that it's stuck in back into that state of grounded, peace, calm, open, receptive, um, until we really understand that our body will 
continue to drive our habitual thoughts and reactions, we won't be able to use or to capitalize on that insight. And I think that's incredibly difficult Mm -hmm. until we again incorporate our body and begin to make those different choices of first and foremost, back to those two steps, becoming aware of the impact that our nervous system is having. The whole first section, when we go into discovering our habitual habit self around our body-based behaviors, there's a lot of work around identifying whether or not we are stuck in that state of nervous system dysregulation or in a stress response. And if we do identify that, you know what, my muscles are always tense, my heart rate is always elevated, my breath is always really shallow or quick and coming from my chest, All of those, I'm just giving a couple, you know, kind of signals that your body might be telling you then that it is unsafe. That means no amount of insight, right, top-down functioning, trying to will your way past that reactivity often won't be successful because when our body feels unsafe, we're going to habitually try to create safety in the way that we once knew, which for some of us is screaming, is yelling, is disconnecting, is dissociating or anything in between. So until we become aware that many of our bodies are calling the shots because they're not in that safe state of grounded presence of calm regulation, then we are going to be driven by those habitual behaviors. So becoming aware then allows us to make some intentional choices of how to ground our body, of how to maybe do some breath work, in terms of regulating that stress response, allowing our body to then actually embody that peace and that calm. Because that's the difference for a lot of us on using that insight in the moment when we need it. Because when our emotional brain is locked and loaded, we actually lose access to that very conscious part of our mind that's reminding us that, you know what, those outcomes are habitual and familiar, yes, though disastrous in whatever way that it's disastrous and then allowing us to make the new, make that new choice until our body is part of that conversation our emotional system's going to be locked and loaded and we're going to catch ourselves somewhere down the line often shamefully so i think that's the number one thing that i like to offer and i hear from most people is wow my body is so powerful that no amount of my insight is actually allowing me to make new choices until i began to teach my body safety. And of course, there's a lot in the first section of this workbook, very intentionally put up front, (laughs) because unless we're safe, right, we're not going to be able to pull that next onion back and discover the deeper core wounds and our ego stories and everything else that then activates or triggers those big emotional reactions. And we're not going to then have the opportunity to make choices that are in alignment with my authentic self. So I strongly urge Many of you who I imagine will pick up this book to meet your authentic self, which does not come until section three, to really (laughs) take the time in those first sections, especially the body section, especially creating safety Mm -hmm. in our nervous system. Because I think that's going to be the biggest surprise is if we blow by those sections, no amount of willpower, white knuckling it, even wishing better will help us change or create that space that we keep talking about and make new choices until our body feels safe enough to do that. I want to dig into the safety concept for a second, and I'm going to use a little personal um, anecdote. So I fall into the same category that you've put yourself in on high achiever. I was, I had a fine childhood, but I definitely was rewarded for performance. And so that is what I sought. I felt, you know, reasonably comfortable in my skin. And there was something in my very early twenties, uh, uh, an event, I had a, um, uh, inner ear infection that came on from went from zero to 
you know, 99. And I thought I was having an aneurysm. I rushed to the hospital. They could, they, they took a little bit to diagnosis. Short story long, my body, um, and even the doctors that, you know, thought I was having an aneurysm and was going to die because of all of these various symptoms, they diagnosed it accurately as an inner ear infection. And it disabled me for months. I had basically a 20 beer buzz for six months. And it is, it was as someone who I identified my part of my identity was built into being um, athletic and very active. And those were areas of passion and interest and in part, you know, some of the key identifiers for myself. And that was essentially dashed in a moment. It was gone and surviving, sitting in what I was, where I was comfortable was in a dark room by myself. And as an extroverted <laughs> athlete, those were, it, that was true hell. And why I'm going into a little bit of depth here is because the concept of safety, when you open the book, or when I open this book, I could not identify with, I'm thinking of my former self, with not being safe as an able-bodied person who felt safe moving through the world, which I acknowledge not everyone does. I understood, I understand safety after this event because my body was in a reaction mode as I healed I couldn't even, if I moved my head quickly, this is like a year later. And if you, if anyone who's listening right now, you move your head quickly, like your, your eyes take, there's a little millisecond in there where they have to refocus. And in that millisecond, I did not have a choice of how to respond. My body would override my brain and say, you're having an aneurysm. You're about to die. And it was only in that experience that I had, and I was later diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and it took me years to basically overcome this. And despite looking reasonably normal on the outside, what was going on inside my head was my body was doing something that my brain knew wasn't happening. I could say, hey, look, you're not about to die. You just moved your head a little bit too quickly. And so I'm wondering if you can dig in a little deeper on this regulating your nervous system and your body not feeling safe, even though you can acknowledge emotionally, like I'm in a room by myself, I'm pretty safe. Help us distinguish that here because I think that that would keep me, my, my earlier self, maybe away from doing the work because I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm safe. I'm a safe person. Yeah. I really, really appreciate um, you sharing so much of your own journey, Chase, and this particular question um, because I think sometimes – and you're speaking to, I think, the reality that most of us, all of us are living, and I like to say kind of we're all blinded to our experiences. We all become so habituated to how it feels to be us that it takes moments, like you're describing, of contrast, of not feeling safe or having the opposite experience to be like, oh, hmm, interesting, right? So mm -hmm. it took your body having it be difficult shifting your eyes quickly and right, your body overriding your mind to have that point of opposition. And again, the way most of us are living is we are subjective to ourselves. We only know ourselves one way and it takes that vantage point or that shift in our state to then see, you know, how unsafe our body might be or to have our body become unsafe and then have that shift in our messaging. And something I heard kind of you say wrapped up in there that as, a, as an overachiever myself, and I think this resonates with a lot of us and 
is often an indicator of us not being maybe as safe as our blinders are telling us that we are in our body. Simple question, even assessment to make is, can you hit stop? Can you have a moment of stillness with yourself? And for a lot of us, for me, for a very long time, the answer was no. Like you're saying, being alone in a dark room, not having plans, not having stimulation. I grew up and lived in a city for the better part of my life up until now more recently. I was used to always being stimulated, always on the go. And if it wasn't something externally, my mind always racing a mile a minute to the extent that free time, being alone, hitting pause, stopping without stimulation, just being present in my own body and with my own thoughts was actually a living nightmare. It was the unsafest, most overwhelming place for me to be. And while you might not be, I, I did just use the language safe there, but the reality of it is if we can't hit a moment of stillness, if we can't hit pause, I should say, and give ourselves a moment of stillness and feel okay in our body without endless stimulation, then that might be an indicator that we're not as safe in our body as we thought. And because the reality of it is to be safely still and in our own presence it is a function of our nervous system. And so many of us actually strategically, whether or not we're aware of it or not, keep ourselves endlessly distracted or doing as a way to keep the focus out of how unsafe, overwhelming, I'll use that language interchangeably, it feels to hit pause, to hit stop. And so again, for a lot of us, we don't know because we've set up a life of endless stimulation, of distraction, and we keep ourselves focused outward that if we really were honest about answering that question, that it, being still doesn't, isn't something, it's something that we avoid. I'll use that particular language. And again, mm. chances are because of the messages that your body is telling your mind in those moments. And while a lot of this, I think, sounds over the top when I use language like, our nervous system is reacting as if there was a bear present, right? We, why would we stop? Stopping is not a priority. Actually, that could be what, you know, creates a bigger problem. So stopping, we need to feel safe, absence of threat. And if our body is not safe, is is if our muscles are activated, if our breath is pumping, our, our, our blood is pumping and our breath is quick, like I described earlier, when we hit stop or when we try to, that message will override the intention of, oh, well, silence is important. Dr. Nicole said it, or, you know, oh, I'm going to meditate. This is why a lot of us avoid the traditional meditating practice, because actually when I try to shift my focus and hit stop, my body is going to override that. It's going to say, no, get your ass moving. There is a bear. Don't stop now. So I love your example. And again, I'm just sharing this because so many of us are so habituated to these states of nervous system dysregulation. And we do see it in these moments when we ask ourselves, wait, do I hit pause? Does, does rest and relaxation feel safe? Is it okay? Is it part of my life? And again, if the answer is no, it might be because similar to with your ear infection, in those moments, your body might actually be giving you the alternative message that actually stopping isn't safe. You need to activate, you need to go, you need to, your, your thoughts will race. And before you know it, your actions will race if again, we don't learn how to ground ourselves in that presence, how to regulate our nervous system so that we can feel safe in stillness. Well, I thank you for that. And I also say, I wish your work was available to me. You know, this is 20 years ago, probably, but I wish it was available to me because my path at the time was, first of all, Western medicine, which literally said, you have a virus, might not go away. Sometimes people have this their whole life. That was literally what a doctor told me. And you're telling me like, this is, I just have gone through the most 
horrifying experience in my life where I was thought and convinced by people who were standing next to me at the bedside in the hospital in the emergency room telling me that, you know, aneurysm, these are words that are being said and I can hear them. I can't see. And uh. yeah. And to go, huh. From Western medicine to uh, things like meditation, awareness practice, learning to direct my attention, learning to control, you know, various aspects of my physicality, my body, which is something you've mentioned over and over and over today. Um, it wasn't until I went on, that was a you know multi-year journey to discover all that stuff. So I, I wish your work was around then. Um, what I want to sort of galvanize is you're using a term sort of nervous system uh, dysregulation. And I heard you sort of interchangeably use overwhelm, for example. And you've talked about heart rate and all these things. Can you simplify for us nervous system dysregulation? Because right now, I, if you don't, if you're not familiar with that phrase or you're thinking about all the different sort of moments across our conversation here that you've said, you know, heart racing or whatever, I think there, <clears throat> it would be helpful to just put a bow on that so people can understand that this is something that probably every person or most, you know, not some huge percentage of those listeners are experiencing and that this is a sign that there's work to do. Absolutely. So I will describe um, just generally our nervous system, how it functions, and then we'll go into then a dysregulated version of that. So when we experience a threat, we have outside of our awareness, our, our sensory system through a process of neuroception, we're always simply what that means is we're always on alert. We're always scanning our environment, seeking information around whether or not it's safe, that environment, or whether or not there's a possible threat present and I might have to do something. In the instance of perceiving a threat, whatever that might be, our nervous system really universally goes through a particular amount of steps. And the first step is we will attempt to mobilize, just like I described, our energy will start to increase, our muscles will start to tense, our breath will start to quicken, our heart rate will start to quicken. What our body is getting ready for is to, the initial attempt we will make is to fight the threat at hand, to literally overcome whatever it is that we're perceiving might be threatening to our survival, our body's survival, we will attempt to fight it. If in the instance that that threaded of itself, we perceive it as too big, too overwhelming for us to fight, to make go away, we will do the next thing with all that mobilized energy running through our system, we'll flee, we'll run to keep ourselves safe. Fighting and fleeing our, our nervous system's attempt at creating safety. Hypothetically, if I've overcome, if I fought that threat away, or if I've run and removed my physical presence from that threat, Hypothetically, I'm now out of the threat left and or I left. Now my nervous system will allow me to go back into safety as if there is no threat present. I will feel calm. I will feel grounded as opposed to really shallow from my chest. I might be breathing very calmly, deep, deeply, evenly from my belly. That amplified energy will go back into a much more rested state. And I'm open. I'm available. I'm attentive to the environment around me. Now in the instance where... The threat is, again, too overwhelming. Maybe fleeing, leaving. This applies to all of us in childhood where we can't pack our bags and leave the home in which we grew up in. 
with the constant overwhelming nature of that threat. We're still not able to overcome it. We're not now able to leave. We will do the final stop in in terms of our nervous system journey in, in hopes of keeping our body safe and much like an animal, we will play dead. So instead of all of that energy that's now mobilized us for action, our body now senses that we can't leave. Leaving isn't going to help in terms of this particular threat. So what I will now do is I will mimic dead. I will play dead in hopes that this threat, whatever it might be, will see that I am no longer a threat to them and will take leave of me. So as opposed to my energy being amplified, now it'll become immobilized. I might feel lethargic. I might feel my muscles are very limp. I might barely be able to feel that I'm breathing at all. Maybe I'm even holding my breath. And again, that will all allow my body to mimic playing dead like we can see animals doing. As the last step, this is called shutdown state of our nervous system. Again, all of this applies when there's a threat that's either consistent or overwhelming enough and we don't have the support or the resources, the ability to bring our own body back into safety, all of which was learned by those early relationships and whether or not we had that present and attuned caregiver who was safe enough in their body that when we were dysregulated, crying, upset because we were hungry or had a bad day at school or whatever it was in between, brought us right back with them through a process of co-regulation into safety itself. So in absence of that, many of us, I had a very present caregiver, though not emotionally present. So anytime consistent daily stress happens, I was left to cycle through that nervous system state, landing in over time, the consistency for me of the stress living in a city, in the stress of having caregivers who had health concerns themselves, the consistent overwhelming nature of the stress, lack of support, not having that attuned caregiver to help my nervous system come back into safety. My body went through all of those steps, right? Fighting, fleeing, trying to distract myself, turn my attention away from the overwhelming feelings in my body, landing on that shutdown state of my nervous system, feeling so disconnected, so distracted, living on my spaceship. And again, so universally, I describe that procedure or that process because all of that is happening in our bodies outside of our awareness. And in absence of having that regulating caregiver in childhood that allows us to then become stressed and come back into calm in our adult life, most of us, when we drop into our body, will sense or will feel the sensations, the tension that's still in our muscles, the elevated heart rate that's always present, right, in our bodies as indication of our nervous system is still in that state of dysregulation because a regulated nervous system very quickly goes from stressed out to peace, to calm, to grounded presence. So if anyone listening doesn't feel peaceful, calm, grounded more often than not, chances are in those moments where you're not feeling that, you're in some state of nervous system response. Mm. Is, is it true to say that, well, first of all, that that state where we're distracted that you, you talked about going through that cycle over and over, that that is a key um, vector for addiction, for example, for numbing, for behaviors that are sort of lashing out in order to try and find some sort of comfort? Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, in my opinion, that that is the underlying cause of a lot of these self-soothing type, often, you know, addiction-based uh, behaviors is our best attempt at 
finding that grounding, finding that safety that we didn't have. So in absence of having a safe, supportive way to understand our emotions, we're left to adapt. And a lot of us will look for those distractive ways to mitigate the deep-rooted pain and suffering that comes, you know, when we live in these different environments. Question two is we talk about, you know, the fears or the threat as to use your exact vocabulary. And um, how would you respond if I said, so that used to be a saber tooth tiger, but now that the saber tooth tiger is not really a thing for most of us, um, things like how many likes our Instagram post did or didn't get, or the grade that we got at school or didn't get, or the way that, you know, Johnny was nice to me on the bus or wasn't, that those now have replaced the saber tooth tiger and are fuel for our nervous system dysregulation. Is that a fair statement also? 100%. I mean, you know, in back in time, it, it was the saber tooth tiger that we had to um, defend our physical body from. Now, in terms of just even our physical or our stressful environments, before we get to the interpersonal stress that many of us live within daily, a lot of us are living in cities on top of each other with loud noises, with sirens. Again, very different from living in a much more kind of nature-based, communal, not concrete um, nature of cities. So a lot of our environments have changed, producing stressful external factors that continue to advocate. Uh, activate our nervous system reaction or response in our bodies and then interpersonally. At our core, again, we are all wired to be in relationship with other humans. Banding together in those supportive communities actually allowed us to not only survive but to thrive as a species. So there is a natural evolutionary part of us that does wonder how we're measuring up, that does look to compare ourselves to others or to simply make sure that our connection to whatever group or community that we are in, you know, operating is, is intact because those connections are our survival. And now with the advent of social media and these virtual communities, we have near constant feedback or, you know, impressions, information about how other people think we're doing or we're measuring up. And that stress in and of itself of how am I doing? How are you evaluating me? Am I safe enough to be who I am is always part of our you know, kind of internal dialoguing process. And now with so much information available on social media, I think that has become for a lot of us another stressor, another activation of, again, these deeper wounds. Many of us who don't feel good enough as we are now are being triggered moment and moment and moment again when we do sign online to see how we're doing and when, of course, we don't feel like we're measuring up to the other people around us. Mm. So good. Your stuff is so good. I'm so grateful for the work you put out in the world. Um, I want to give a personal endorsement again for how to meet yourself the workbook that dr nicole has created um as a i don't know downstream of the work that you did on on in, in your last book and um from after there's actual legit like tools from uh, understanding your your past and your traumas, affirmations. There's so much in here. I want to say thank you. Um, what message would you leave our listeners with today who um, are curious about this work, um, maybe already following you or scrolling you right now going, wow, this is interesting. What advice would you give um, 
yeah, just to the, the, the person who is curious about the work that you have laid out for us. To anyone out there curious, you know, tuning into conversations, looking at my work, whatever you know, vehicle it is that you're, you're consuming the content around is I want to acknowledge, see you and, and celebrate you. Um, because, you know, with all of this information that's so available at our fingertips, and again, going back even beautifully full circle, how habitual so many of us are, I know in and of itself how difficult it is to be curious, to sometimes hear new ideas, new thoughts, especially because some of us have come, you know, with very traditional messaging that isn't what you hear maybe people like me saying. So I want to celebrate that curiosity. I want to celebrate anyone who tunes into, you know, conversations that present new ideas because with newness, as we've been talking about, does come challenge. And, you know, I remember as I became into contact and expose myself to a lot of this new information that I'm now sharing with everyone else, you know, it is, it's challenging. There was a part of myself too that was so used to, right, being this, you know, inherently anxious person who cannot change for all the different reasons that we've talked about. There was a very big challenge to who I thought I was as I was exposed to this new information. So I want to honor everyone out there who hears um, new ideas and, and who then allows themselves to be the determinant of what they do with this new information. Because again, mm -hmm. a lot of us, we limit ourselves. Um, it is, it is difficult to hear challenging, especially if we've learned, you know, to identify ourselves as one way. I know a lot of what I talk about is out of a lot of mainstream messaging that at least I know I was exposed to. So I think the message I want to end on is one of celebration of acknowledgement of everyone who, and of you, Chase, who, you know, has these conversations and exposes people to these new ideas. It is truly, truly something to celebrate, mm. in my opinion. Thank you. And thank you for sharing that you've been a part of our community for a long time. That was, that was, uh, it was, it's always refreshing. None of us know how the work that we do in the world may or may not be impacting someone from across the planet. So, um, I love this full circle moment, and I'm also very, very grateful for your work. I would categorize our conversations uh, in the absolute highest tier of the guests that I've had on the show for the impact that you were having on the world. And it's no surprise looking at how fast your work is spreading. And as I started off again, the show is it's so um, joyful and exciting to me that, that your work is reaching so many people. Congratulations again. How to Meet Yourself, the new workbook, so valuable. Thank you for being on the show. You're always welcome here. Any, I mean, if you even, uh, if you, anything you ever want to speak to this community about, I would be honored to have you on the show. So thank you for being here. Um, and to everybody else in the world, anything else you want to share? I mean, you've, you said it all, but I always want to. Thank you. Immense gratitude. Like I said, oh. I was such a fan of you and your work from well before I even had the opportunity to now have two conversations with you. So all of these moments, again, are just, I'm so grateful for all of these opportunities. So thank you. Thank you. And to everybody out there in the world from yours truly and Dr. Nicole, thank you for being a part of this community, for tuning in and sharing the work. And until next time, we both bid you adieu. All right. That's all for today's show. But hey, before you go, I want to say thank you for listening and also for engaging with the platform. Wherever you consume a show, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere, thank you so much. Reviews help ton if you're willing to. And I want you to let you know in an effort to continue the topics we explore here on the show, or if you have questions, you can always direct your comments to me on all my social feeds. I'm at Chase Jarvis everywhere, but also 
I will see your message quicker if you shoot me a text. That's right. I can text directly with you. The best way is to hit me up at 206-309-5177. I get a lot of texts, so I can't always get back to you right in the moment. But trust me, those are my thumbs on the other end of the keyboard. So I want to say thanks so much, and I look forward to engaging with you soon.